Well, I'll give it a shot, man. We'll see how this goes. It's going to be fun. I'm not used to be on this side of the microphone. I have to tell you that uh, about a few weeks ago, I had an opportunity to host a uh, networking event, a social media breakfast here in uh, in Minneapolis, St. Paul. I had attended like 40 or 50 of them beforehand, but uh, I was actually up front emceeing and introducing guests and, you know, running through the presentations and stuff like that. And I, I was nervous about it, but then, you know, basically it was actually not that hard. I'm hoping that for you today. Well, I, I hope so too. You know, I've been listening for so long. I'm hoping that, uh, I can, I can fill in for Keith's big shoes at least a little bit today. It's gotta be the shoes. 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 You sure it's not the shoes? Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, where we're in our 13th season of podcasting in our 21st season of covering Division Three football. We welcome you to podcast number 242, the one with... Yeah, right. Do you recognize the music, everybody? It's our guest host. Go ahead. Jim Catanzaro from Lake Forest College. Yeah, Jim is uh, stepping in, sitting in for uh, Keith McMillan. Uh, I'm Pat Coleman, so I definitely appreciate you, you joining us here. You've been on the pod, obviously, before. I think we had an entire separate edition of the podcast just to talk to you, but I think it's the first time that we have ever had a head coach uh, sit in on the podcast, so we definitely appreciate you doing it. I'm glad to be here. Excited to uh, to lend any references I can and fill in any way I can for Keith. Uh, I'm not sure I'm I'm big enough guy to take uh, you know take care of his stuff, but we'll give it a shot. Well, we'll uh, we'll see how it works out. Uh, the journalistic term for this, of course, is Keith McMillan is on assignment. And uh, Jim, I got to tell you, I know, like you said, you're a longtime listener. I don't know if you'll be super impressed with how the sausage is made on this podcast. Well, I, I think if we're going to be making sausage, the most important thing is deciding what kind are we making. Is this a uh, you know, happy breakfast sausage, a spicy chorizo, or we're going to get some beer-soaked bratwurst for a tailgate. You know, I worked in an Italian meat market growing up in New York, and so we, we got to know this part. This is important to make that decision first. I did not think we were going to be talking about actually making actual sausage on this podcast, but I got to tell you, uh, when I was growing up in my kind of blended uh, Irish-Italian family, we would make our homemade Italian sausage about once a year, and it was this big production, you know, uh, these days, I don't even know like where the pork would come from. Uh, they would, uh, you know, we would uh, grind it and add this, uh, you know, mixture of uh, seasonings and, and spices, and then, you know, uh, they would go through the whole thing where you you grind that all together and you put it into the casing. And um, you know, I've only really done that like once or twice as an adult. But the best part about the Coleman family sausage or the the tenuto wing of the Coleman family sausage is that the Italian sausage just gets more spicy the longer it sits in the freezer. That's absolutely true. We should probably go get the grills lit up instead of talking football right now. Well, the nice part is, and I really appreciate this, you've uh, given me a, a nice early in the afternoon recording session time, so there will still be time to not only fire up the grill. But Dad, come on, you're going to fall on the barbecue. Uh, but watch some football. Um, you know, crack open a, a cold beverage and that sort of thing here uh, when we uh, put pod 242 to bed. And this is a uh, coming off of a week two, which we had a, a bunch of big games that went to overtime on a in uh, mind of all that. We'll try to keep this podcast in regulation so that we can both get the rest of our days. But uh, meanwhile, the two longest active losing streaks in Division three football uh, were terminated this weekend. 
Three West Region teams traveled to play on the road at East Region teams. Oh, big old jet Two of them went back home disappointed, and everybody's favorite backup quarterback sparked his team to victory. We'll have more on that in just a minute, but now I should tell you that the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by Gotta Have It. If you've been listening to the last couple of podcasts, you're probably familiar by now with our sponsor for this season, Gotta Have It. Gotta Have It, 3D fan foams. They do these uh, fan, uh, these foam fan wall signs you can put on your uh, wall in your... Uh, you know, in your in your uh, TV room, in your office, uh, your office at work, or maybe on your cube. Uh, they do it for a bunch of uh, bigger schools and also a handful of schools at the Division Three level, like Mary Hardin Baylor, like uh, UW-Whitewater, like Mount Union, Johns Hopkins. You may remember them from last year's national semifinals. Also, East Texas Baptist University. These are some pretty uh, substantial items. You know, they're not like something that you just uh, slap on the wall and is two-dimensional. You know, it's got some real three-dimensionality to it. And, uh, Coach, I just uh, texted one of these over to you. I was thinking about, you know, the, the Forrester logo would look pretty cool in a representation like this, right? It's got the you got the three-dimensional uh, part with the toes of the, uh, uh, I don't even know, I guess. What are, what, what's the foot? That, that's a black bear. It's a black bear. I, I, think it would, uh, I think it would work out well for you guys. You, should, you guys should look into it. I think I've got a man cave that would look perfect in. I think we should get that going. But I also think that our sponsors should talk to Ed OG and the Bulldogs from the 90s hip-hop realm because they got a song, I Gotta Have It, that I think would be a perfect intro song for their stuff every week on the podcast. Uh, we just uh, got five minutes into the podcast before a, a hip-hop reference. That's awesome. Uh, if you are looking for, if you're a coach looking to, you know, add this for your program, right? Not just for your personal office, but uh, all of your alumni probably want something like this, right? Um, if you are a fan looking to have it, you know, for for you know for yourself personally, go to gottahaveitfanfoams.com. If you have any questions about how to spell that, you can find it in the show notes for this show or on the uh, show page, but you can definitely find it there. Not only will you have the opportunity, of course, to take a look at what they do have, there's a handful of uh, Division One teams as well. Say you're a uh, say you're an Army or a Navy fan or an Air Force fan, you can have uh, something from them as well. There's contact info for uh, how you can get your team added to it, especially if you're a coach or a marketing director for a Division Three school. There's lots of opportunities for you to get into this. So thanks to Gotta Have It for sponsoring the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. All right, so we talked just ever so briefly about uh, the big games from Saturday went into multiple overtimes. Delaware Valley and Wesley go to four overtimes. Uh, they go a long time practically before anybody scores and definitely a long time before anybody scores a touchdown. And then uh, Illinois Wesleyan and uh, UW Lacrosse go to a pair of overtimes as well. Starting out on the uh, battle on the East Coast, you know, this is a, a game that, uh, you know, Delval and Wesley have played multiple years running and uh you know wesley's trying to bounce back they've had some uh you know they had some graduations and of course you know the the loss of of coach mike drass before the 2018 season certainly probably had an impact on just the emotional state they lost a bunch of close games last year this year you know getting off to a, a bit of a good start and uh you know um on the opposite side delaware valley lost a bunch of talent from its 2018 season and a 2018 season in which it got bounced out of the playoffs in the first round. So this was a, a really interesting game just coming into it. 
Yeah, I think one of the things that's kind of great to see with Wesley coming back is winning the close game this year to start the season. And, you know, they went through the whole regulation. It was a 3-3 tie at the end of regulation. And they needed the second half to get those two field goals going before anybody started to score touchdowns. And I think that defensive battle is going to serve, you know, that defensive type of play will serve both teams really, really well throughout the course of the season. But I do think that the, you know, that tough win for uh, Wesley is an important thing to do at the beginning of the year to kind of knock off that thoughts of any hindrings from last year where they weren't winning the close games. You know, Coach, um, we have talked about this a little bit on the podcast in previous years. It's been a little while, but, uh, you know, one of the things that I think we have often seen, not all the time, but we've seen it quite a bit, is that when a team loses somebody that's close to them, like uh, a fellow student athlete, head coach, uh, you know, a, a longtime assistant coach, something like that, it just seems like you can almost always point at that very next year and you know, see the effect in the in the one loss column, and then they often bounce back the year after that. Yeah, I think they do become more resilient from that because they're emotionally more strong. You know, we had that experience at Lake Forest a couple of years ago with one of our players passing, and it really put our young men in a situation where they had to learn different parts about themselves. And, and you hate to call it the growing up process, but they some of them it was the first time they lost somebody close. And when you get somebody like Coach Strass, who was a a father figure for many of the players in his program through the years. Um, you know, he's that guy that was the, in a lot of places, the strongest foundation of a male role model for some of the guys in that program. And when you lose that, you start searching for something else and you don't think about the importance of the wins and losses as much as you do the relationships and the, uh, the people you're with and the wins and losses sometimes don't quite have the, the same importance that year. Then you come back and you get some more clarity and you realize we have to play for him as we go forth. And that's, that's hopefully what's happening for Wesley right now. The game ended uh, when Corey Williams, a uh, defensive back for Wesley picked off the, uh, the quarterback, Anthony Fontana, one of multiple interceptions he threw in that extended game. Uh, that one in the fourth overtime after uh, Wesley had scored to begin overtime number four and the uh, two point conversion had been stopped. So final score in that one, 24 to 18. Wesley improves to 2 and 0. Delaware Valley falls to 1 and 1. Of course, a uh, non-conference action and, and both of those conferences with the uh, multiple non-conference games. Going to switch over to the Illinois Wesleyan UW Lacrosse game, a game I was at on Saturday in which uh, UW Lacrosse started off strong, went up 14 nothing, uh, added a 48-yard field goal at the buzzer at halftime to go up 17 to 7. And then Illinois Wesleyan kind of figured some things out. They had uh, drives of 11 plays, 13 plays, 14 plays, chewed up a bunch of clock, and uh, came back to uh, take a 20 to 17 lead. Then the teams trade touchdowns, uh, lacrosse with a 38-yard a, a field goal very late in regulation, and then the teams trade empty overtimes before Rusty Murphy finishes this off in dramatic fashion. He strips the Illinois Wesleyan receiver of the ball, returns at 88 yards for the touchdown to win the game, and here is how lacrosse coach Mike Schmidt described it. 
they, they complete a ball to, to, to get a first down, going to move into position to score, going to put a ton of pressure on our offense right there for sure because uh, they were just moving the ball like crazy, and we, we were able to get him get around him. He stays up. We strip the football. Rusty Murphy picks it up and goes, I don't know, whatever, 75 yards with it. Um, that's his second one now. <laughs> that's his second fumble return walk-off touchdown in two years. Had one against uh, Stout last year and now does it again this year. I mean, what can you even say about that? I, I've never seen anything like that in my career you know, once, let alone now twice in, in our really our last like eight games. So uh, Rusty Murphy with a big play and our defense coming up big for us. One of the big themes we always talk about, Jim, is the uh, the teams that are playing in their first game versus teams that are playing in their second game. And it definitely looked like it was a, a slow start for Illinois Wesley, and they gave a, bit, a big play on like the second play from scrimmage, miscommunication in the secondary. And, uh, you know, but after that, things kind of settled down. And it was a really competitive game. Yeah, sitting here looking at the uh, box score of that game, uh, you know, I know Coach S pretty well, and I know how much he values ball security. And to see seven turnovers, that's a stat you almost never see in a game, period, much less from a team as highly up there as Illinois Wesleyan. I mean, last season alone, they only had 21 turnovers in the entire year, and so to have seven in the first game is is really eye-catching. And one of the things I think that's important to note here is that, you know, this was Illinois Wesleyan's first game. And one of the things that does is there's a little bit of rust that has to get knocked off, getting up to game speed. And by not playing in week one, their camp count date start is a week later than a lot of other teams um, in previous years. Now, this year they had the same number of practice opportunities, but where they get hurt is that week before a game, they can't get a scrimmage now because the vast majority of Division Three is playing their week one game. Uh. And so even though they're going to have the same number of practices, they're not getting that scrimmage like a lot of other teams did a week out. Well, that's really interesting because, uh, you know, we talk a little bit about, you know, counting back for camp and when camp starts and that sort of thing. And of course, you know, teams, uh, I mean, I guess maybe not in your conference, but a lot of Division Three teams have the opportunity to have more than one uh, scrimmage opportunity now. That's a really good point, though. There's not a lot of teams that are looking for something in week one going into a week two opener. Yeah, in the last two years we've had the once that came back about we did have two shared practices a year ago. Um, but this year, because we were playing on Thursday night, we only took advantage of one of those. But I do know there are several teams in our conference that are doing that. And it does make a big difference. because We had a, a pretty long layoff between our scrimmage and our first game this year. It was almost uh, 12, 12 days. And so for a lot of other teams, you know, if he's gone two weeks without having had that full speed competition, whereas lacrosse had played a week ago, they're just operating a little bit different game speed. And I, I think that can be a huge advantage for a team when they're playing their second game and another team's playing their first, especially early in the season. One of the other storylines from Saturday was just kind of, I don't know, maybe it's just a made-for-podcasting storyline, really. East region versus West region. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. West region teams traveling to the East. George Fox loses at Alfred. UW Oshkosh loses at Salisbury. And Linfield salvages a win for the West region with the victory at Rowan. Jim, I got to ask, I know, you know, I'm going to know what the answer to this question, but a lot of people out there aren't going to, right? And since you're the chair of the National Football Committee, which I don't think we've actually said here, I got to ask for those people, does this have any effect on how East teams versus West teams will be viewed when it comes to Selection Sunday? The way that this will really impact Selection Sunday is if the teams that played are both regionally ranked at the end of the season or if they're on the line for at-large bids at the same time. So, for instance, if Linfield and Rowan are both up for the at-large, that would obviously be a tip for Linfield against them. Additionally, let's say the University of Wisconsin-Oshkosh goes undefeated from here on out, and Salisbury does as well. 
that would be a regionally ranked win over a likely highly seeded West region team. This could give Salisbury not over other East teams in their regional rankings to get higher ranks and potentially get an additional home game down the road, even though we don't seed. Uh, the teams that won are hoping that the teams they beat go undefeated for the rest of the year because that means they're going to be making the tournament and they want to have those wins against other tournament teams. One of the things that a long trip like this does, too, is it gives coaches a chance to add on to the experience of just traveling and, and playing the football game. Here's Linfield coach Joe Smith chatting with Frank Rossi of In the Huddle after Linfield's win at Rowan. I think anytime you fly commercial, it's it's tough, you know, to put that many kids on a plane and all that. But um, our guys handled it great. I mean, that wasn't a, a distraction. It's just how it is. Um, we had to do a couple different flights, a couple layovers and all that. But we got here safe and and... You know, so I, I didn't think that was an issue. Once you got here, uh, how's the experience been here in New Jersey? It's been great. Um, you know, we've gotten to travel so much the last couple years, the last 10 years, to be honest, uh, with all the playoff games we've played across the country. And so I think we're pretty adept at flying. We do it all the time um, out of necessity. So when, when you do that, it's really fun to compare different parts of the country. And, and you know, there are places that are really hospitable, like Texas is great. And, and I thought everybody in New Jersey is wonderful to us. And, and so I really respect Rowan, and they've been great to us and helped us with some gear and those sorts of things. So that was really nice. Rowan wasn't too nice to you when they tied the game 14-14 at one point, but your team scored 21 in the answer to end the game. What were you telling your team at that point when it was tied? Well, I think we were just a little frustrated with with some of our mistakes that we were making. And of course, you know, the other team always contributes to the mistakes you make. So some of that was the plays they were making. But, um, you know, being game one for us, that, that, that's always an ugly game to, to get the procedural issues out of the way. I mean, I don't, must have had seven or eight offsides today and some procedural penalties. Played pretty clean on offense from that standpoint. But I think once we clean that up, we'll be a much better football team. Um, and so we didn't really say anything. We just kind of try to stay steady and be self-referent throughout the game and not play to the score, not play to the, the clock at all until the fourth quarter. So that's sort of always our mantra, and it helps us weather bad storms, I think, because you just don't worry about that. You worry on the next play. Big fan base showed up here today, and I heard you uh, talk about some post-game functions going on, like some cheesesteaks maybe coming uh, through for the guys. Uh, what's uh, next? When do you guys head back? You know, we love uh, – Sonny's uh, cheesesteaks in Philadelphia. That's something we got when we played Widener and love those. So our guys are fired up. Uh, we're going to go do something educationally. Uh, I always try to do that when we're on the road. I want our guys to see something of great significance on our trips. And Nobody knows yet, so I can't say, but, but it'll be pretty spectacular. I have it on good authority that that special trip was up to New York City to see the Statue of Liberty. We just had to hold on to that information for today in order not to so, uh, spoil the surprise for the guys Coach, I was thinking you guys should play a non-conference game against uh, someone from the Skyac, maybe Pomona Pitzer, but play it in Arizona. I hear you guys do a little bit of Arizona at Lake Forest. Yeah, we definitely like Arizona, and ironically, I'm in New York City right now, and I will be headed to the Statue of Liberty tomorrow with my son. Um, I don't know Coach Walsh at Pomona, but this sounds like a, a really excellent idea, but I would definitely want to play it in Week 11 instead of Week 1 or 2, knowing the weather in Arizona is about 30 degrees warmer than it is in Chicago right now. Um, maybe we can get Rippin to move our, uh, our game against them out to Arizona since we're both recruiting Arizona and to be a Midwest conference game in our Southwest suburb. <laughs> that's, uh, I mean, that's between you and them and I don't know, maybe the conference or what, uh, I think we all assume that McAllister is going to go back to the MAAC once St. Thomas leaves. So that probably frees up some space in your Midwest conference schedule. Whenever you do book that game, uh, I'm sure you'll need broadcasters. So, uh, I know a few you should keep in mind. 
I know who's at the top of my list. Should be an easy phone call. Uh, also this week, the two longest active losing streaks in Division Three went by the wayside on consecutive days. Friday night, it was William Patterson ending a 27-game losing streak by beating FDU Florham 28-23. And Crown didn't have the longest active streak for long. They beat Beloit 23-6 to snap their 24-game skid. Coach, our intel from this game, though, is pretty interesting. It says that just 66 guys dressed out for that game on Saturday, and that is both teams combined. Wow, and that's where this is where one of the greatest discrepancies and dangers in Division Three is really starting to occur. You know, some schools are using their athletic programs as extensions of their admissions departments to boost their enrollment, and you're seeing these total participation numbers at some schools over 250 to 300 students between their JV varsity, and some of them are even having freshman teams now. Um, other schools are struggling to field the team because of their institutional academic requirements, possible coaching turnover, or financial aid practices that are really preventing roster growth for some of these teams. And it's a situation, um, sometimes like the hiring at the staff at Beloit this past year, where it was so late into the recruiting season that they basically missed an entire recruiting class and found themselves behind. Yeah. The problem is that's not just a one-year issue. This is going to be a four-year impact on their roster as those smaller classes, classes start to matriculate up. Uh, you know, it's positive that these young men are finding a place to play football. Um, but I think that the physical wear and tear and maybe even the emotional wear and tear that some of them are having is really diminishing the positivity of the experience. Um, you're not getting the ability to rest in game when you're tired or even maybe take a practice day off if you're beat up out of loyalty to their teammates. They're still showing up. And, and this is one of those other scenarios where you're starting to see some of these light lopsided losses uh, for certain teams when they're playing somebody that has a roster of, you know, 110 people and they maybe only show up with 35 to 40 and they just don't have enough depth to keep up. Um, so I, I think that every institution really has to look in the mirror from the top down and, and make that decision. If they want to be excellent as an institution in all areas, they can't just put their football program off to the side and ignore it. And I think that's why it's really great to see schools like the Nescax or maybe Washu or Johns Hopkins that have demonstrated their commitment to being great, not only in academics, but also in athletics and giving their coaches and athletes the tools they need to be successful. You know, a coach, I have to admit, uh, um, I have to think that you have seen and participated against some of those schools as well. I, I without having your specific uh, Midwest Conference schedule in front of me and knowing that the divisions flopped around this season, I don't remember if you're playing Beloit, but I know that there's a couple of schools in your conference that are like that. Yeah, and sometimes it's really hard because you have to, you know, maybe take into consideration even as the opposing coach the health and well-being of the the players you're playing against. And making sure that you're not doing things that maybe endanger them, you know, is, you know, running extra plays or certain plays because you realize that the other team only has so many guys. And I know there's been games in our conference where we've had to uh, shrink the quarter length down to do that. We've had to do that this year already and making sure that the players have enough rest um, and have some success, maybe extending the length of time in between quarters uh, to get them more rest. And so from my perspective, you know, it's just one of those things that um, hopefully some of the schools that are in those situations have a plan to, to improve their situations, but it is going to take a lot of effort, not just from the coaches and throwing money at it either. It's, I think that's one of the misconceptions is, Hey, maybe we had another coach or we, you know, throw more money into the recruiting budget, but it's, it's a lot more to it than just that. I have to think that recruiting budget probably wouldn't hurt in something like that though. I'm sure that most coaches would take that. Uh, the national champs, the defending national champs, did get started on Saturday here in week two. Mary Harden Baylor uh, got off to a little bit of a slow start. They struggled in the first half against Albright, leading 17 to 9 at the break. Uh, Ryan Redding, a, a newcomer to the program, was getting the start at quarterback. 
and uh, things didn't quite go so well for them in the first half. But uh, in the second half, uh, we refer to him now as everybody's favorite backup quarterback. That's Luke Porman, who was, uh, of course, a backup at Mount Union and then a backup last year after he transferred to Mary Harden Baylor. He got uh, he got the call in the second half. Mary Harden Baylor scored uh, three and a half minutes later. Then they scored again uh, 90 seconds after that. Uh, very quickly, it was 31-9, and eventually it was 56 to 15. Coach, obviously not having watched tape, I totally get that. Not uh, and, and not that all sorts of things. But uh, Mary Harden Baylor, obviously got to see a bit of them last year. Uh, got to hand them a, a national championship trophy. And then what's it? You know what? What's your take on, uh, you know, coming out of that and then maybe a slow start coming out of the gate? Well, they are they're obviously trying to get the quarterback uh, situation figured out. And I think that what you saw yesterday was a team that ran the ball for 240 yards to really you know dictate the terms of their victory. Um, you know, both quarterbacks, six of 10, four of 10 for 87 and 55 yards each. That's kind of a tough thing. You know, it's one of those old coachisms that if you don't if you've got two quarterbacks, you don't have a quarterback. And I think they're just trying to find the right fit. Um, for what they're trying to do as an offensive identity. And, you know, as they as they go through this, it's going to be a very interesting, um, you know, season for them to figure out their offense. But the nice thing is, you know, that when you're at Mary Hardin-Baylor, that you've got a defense that's going to do a lot of incredible things. And, you know, when you see a team yesterday that has, I think they had close to 12 tackles for a loss, um, five or six sacks. So, I mean, they had a day on defense that was going to keep them in the game or help them win games while they try to figure this out through the early part of the season. And I should just note, for the record, before we go to the break, of course, the reason why some of these quarterback uh, changes are, are flopping around over there is because Jace, Jace Hammock, who uh, started the you know their entire season down the stretch uh, but got hurt in the national championship game, is still hurt. Back on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. You guys probably know, uh, if you're a, a longtime listener, that we will usually drop an interview into this segment. It feels silly to go out and solicit an entire separate interview when we have Jim Catanzaro here, who is uh, not only the head coach at Lake Forest College, but also the chair of the Division Three Football National Committee. And uh, Coach, uh, like I said up at the top, I really appreciate you uh, filling in for Keith on this. And now we'll let you wear the coach's hat for a second. Outstanding. I'm more comfortable in this one, that's for sure. So how's it going? Uh, it's a 2-0 and season, a, a pretty cool win on Thursday night uh, back in week one in your opener, and then, uh, you know, um, a game against Grinnell, which probably goes, um, I don't know, I, I don't even know how to describe that. A 44 nothing win, obviously, is is got to be pretty happy. Yeah, we, we take that. We'll take victories anytime we can. I remember my first couple of years here getting the program going, and we were – we we're four and 16 for the first two years. So we don't apologize for wins and we'll take them. However, we can find them at, at this point in my career. I have an appreciation for winning. That's for sure. You were talking about uh, playing in a game that was shortened, I guess, uh, looking at uh, time of possession when it doesn't add up to 60 minutes, just looks, looks a little strange to me. You've talked a little bit about just kind of what coaching in that game is like, but uh, I guess one of the things is when you're at home, you have the opportunity to put pretty much anybody who is healthy into the game. Yeah, you really do. And we actually played 87 players in the game yesterday. So the uh, the participation report for the uh, the stat crew upload is going to be a lot of fun to do on Monday. Uh, but we did get everybody, literally everybody that's healthy on our team got a chance to play. And I've always 
taking that as a compliment when we can do that. And we try to do that as coaches. You know, if you can get your backup long snapper and your backup punters and kickers in the game, that's that's usually the hardest thing to do. And that's a good sign. And, you know, we were able to do that on Saturday. And the, the best part is that's that further proves my my personal belief of why we don't have a JV program is that I would have hated to have a JV game scheduled. And now we've got everybody here for our home opener. And I can't play some of these kids because I'm saving them for a JV game that nobody's going to watch. And uh, to me, I, I think we can still develop our athletes without having to play a JV schedule. And, you know, yesterday was one of those opportunities for those kids to get those live reps. That's actually um, uh, something that I've been looking to kind of collect some uh, sound bites on. We might talk a little bit more about uh, JV programs a little bit later in the season. Uh, we obviously, if you read the features on our website over the course of the previous week, fans probably now know about Jordan McInerney. We knew about him as a, you know, a kind of a high motor guy with a, a higher uh, levels skill set coming in and being a dominant force up front for you. And then we learned a little bit of his backstory this week, too. Yeah, Jordan's one of those special players. He's a guy that I can't, you know, I don't get tired of talking about him. He's a guy that's in my position group as a defensive line player. And so I get to spend you know, extra time with him, seeing him at his highest of highs, you know, and even his lowest of lows. And He's a guy that's matured significantly and just, you know, he's as far as talent goes, there are a few players with the talent that he has. And, um, you know, he's just a long wingspan guy that can cause problems. He reminds me of a old football player, Ted Hendricks, back in the day. And, you know, he's just got that big, long arms and, big, you know, strength and heart that's going to make him get different places. And his heart's not just about football, it's about people. And I think that's where, you know, he stands out the most to me is when I see him interacting with other people at our postgame tailgates or, you know, even on Saturday where he got to meet DJ Baker's dad, who's the, the player who passed away on us uh, a couple of years ago. And, and Jordan had had a chance to wear that number 93 as the player of the game from the week before. And his intention to go find Mr. Baker and them sharing time of losing a loved one and talking about that component was really was really unique and special to watch as a, as a football coach to see a you know, a 21 year old man do that with a, with a dad of a, who had lost his, lost his son playing football for. So it was kind of, kind of emotional to watch. And, you know, it's just the kind of guy that he is. So it's, he, he deserves every accolade he gets this, this far. You were talking about the just emotional maturity that comes from, uh, you know, a, a team or an individual facing some, you know, some uh, tragic story in their lives, but just in general, you know, when you guys are in a position like this, you get to watch, kids come in and, you know, you know, mathematically they're adults, right. But, uh, you know, I have had a 19 year old in my house who I still think of as a kid. And by the time they leave, you know, 22 years old, you, you, you get to watch them mature in a lot of different ways, not just physically. Absolutely. And I think there's a couple of six month windows where we really get to see a lot. There's that, that first six months where they're on campus and they're away from home and it's no longer mom and dad taking care of them and making sure that they're going to bed or having their laundry done or food in the refrigerator. And they have to kind of really become responsible for themselves. Um, then there's a six month window that's going into, I'd call the sophomore second semester where you see a lot of our young men take that growth curve from being, okay, I'm a college student to now I'm preparing for the rest of my life, whether it's as they start to look for internships or they start to do, um, you know, different academic pursuits or research in the sciences, they really take a focus that's going to have a much longer lasting impact on their life rather than what's going on, you know, this Friday night or this Saturday night, which uh, to be honest with you, in freshman in probably that first semester, sophomore year is a lot bigger concern. And then that six months after they graduate and now they're paying their own bills and they're living in their own apartment and they're going to work every day and getting a paycheck and doing their banking and stuff like that. Like 
there is a huge growth curve. And so you're talking about a, a four-year window where I see some of the most large growth changes in, a, in an adult male. And I, and I really say that as the adult male, because that's who I deal with. But you, when you watch these guys go from 18-year-old high school seniors that we're recruiting to that 22, 23-year-old fresh out of college in the workforce, uh, th- that, that is no different than when you see a, a six-month-old child become a, a two-and-a-half-year-old toddler where they can talk and walk and do all that kind of stuff. It's the same size growth. Oh, interesting point. Hey, um, you know, obviously the offense for you guys over the course of the past couple of years, you know, Valdivia obviously gone, long gone now. You know, Cleary was a, a longtime starting quarterback for you, uh, is gone too. So what's like the new look? How is the offense gelling? I'm gelling like a felon. Um, the offense is gelling really well. I think one of the, uh, the things that's probably been the bigger uh, change for us is um, Coach Ted Sankson leaving us to go to uh, Beloit is their head football coach, and our offensive court, or our quarterback coach last year, Quinn Schaefer, left to become the offensive coordinator um, up in North Dakota at a Division II school. And so losing those two guys brought in a new coaching staff and some new schematics. Um, but we were really young this year. We, we've only got um, three seniors who are starting for us at this point, and we've got um, you know two freshmen that are starting for us. And so that, that youth is kind of getting served a lot on all over the field, and the, uh, the chemistry is really good, and that's the part I like the most. I think having the coaches here in the spring to have that non-traditional season to start that install and then having some really talented freshmen, we're, we're seeing some real positives that way. We look a little bit different. Our personnel groupings are a little bit different, uh, but Billy Degnan, a quarterback, is a senior who's you know been behind Jagan for the last three years, and he's, he's playing really, really well and really, really smart right now in the first two games, and you know there's going to be more of that to come. For those of us who are interested in you now putting on your NCAA hat, what are the things that people should keep in mind? Anything new, any new wrinkles this year when we're talking about playoff selection or the playoff, you know, just the process itself? No, the, the process is really going to be the same as it, as it was last year. There's no pull beef teams this year. Um, so it's going to be the, the five AQs. Um, there are things in the, the undercurrent that are being looked at, but nothing's been decided at this point. And so as far as the you know changing regions and things of that nature, um, I, I do think that the football committee was able to give some pretty um, pointed and strong feedback about that. And I think that was one of the things that maybe put the brakes on, um, at least for football reorganization, to kind of take a pause at this moment. Um, but to be honest with you, I think right now it's going to be very similar. Teams need to, to go out and win games. I, I think that's a, you know the best way to get in there is to be the AQ. Um, if your conference is AQ, you're going to get in. And, and then from that point on, it's a very small number of opportunities for a whole lot of teams. And that's You've got over 200 teams, of, you know, vying for those five spots, and there, there can only be so many getting in there. Yeah, we talked about the proposals on regional realignment uh, back over the off season. It sounds like there's probably still another whole conversation we could have about that. But uh, I think I, I I hate to be the guy who is the traditionalist who says things cannot change. Right? We can't possibly do things differently um, because. You know, I, I mentioned quite often, I think, on this podcast that I'm a baseball fan, a baseball guy, right? And I have watched MLB people complain about things that have changed in Major League Baseball and, you know, addition of playoffs and blah, blah, blah. Yada, yada, yada. Game got to evolve, I think. But all that being said, I really think that uh, somehow anything trying to change us out of the four region format that we currently have and that has worked for us and worked well and just makes sense because of the way our bracket works, 
Um, uh, I'm just glad that we can, if any way we can pump the brakes on that and, uh, and pull it off the road and dismantle the engine and all sorts of other things would be just fine. I'm kind of with you on that one, but hopefully there's not too many complaints about baseball because, uh, Commissioner Manfred and I went to the same high school in New York, so we don't want to have any any problems with him. We'd like to we'd like to keep baseball good and clean. And but I think with the regional alignments, there are some ways you can maybe do it different. But I'm not sure that they serve the best interest of the the playoff field or the preparation for the playoffs and seedings and things like that to get the the tournament built. I, I think that the tournament build, you know, the four regions makes sense. Could they say eight regions that are kind of sub regions and do different things? Maybe. Uh, but now you're really asking for a lot out of, um, you know, coaches and administrators across the country to get to know even more teams or different teams uh, as they do their regional rankings and things of that nature. And I, I do think that the the four region setup right now, at least, has, has worked really, really well. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll kind of stick with that. Game ball. Game ball. Game ball. Game ball. That's right. Game it's time balls. for the podcast for game balls. And Jim, I'm going to give my game ball for week two to Joey Roth, UW lacrosse cornerback. Roth intercepted three passes in that win Saturday against Illinois Wesleyan. And he also had a sack and the sack led to one of the picks in my mind. Roth sacked Brandon Bauer on first down in the first overtime after lacrosse had come up empty on its possession. On the next play, Bauer kind of rushes the throw and throws it a little bit behind Dean Ziglich. Roth picks it off and preserves the tie, sends us to the second overtime. Earlier in the game, a Roth interception set up the Eagles with that final first half possession, and they made the most of it as Ryan Byrne kicked that 48-yard field goal right at the half to give lacrosse a 17-7 lead. Big performance in a big game when they needed some big takeaways, and that's why Joey Roth gets my game ball. Outstanding. I'm going to actually stay in Wisconsin, but I'm going to leave the WIAC sort of to go to Sam Stalling at St. Norbert College. The wide receiver had five catches for 172 yards and two touchdowns from two different quarterbacks. Helped leading St. Norbert College their first victory over an in-state YX school since twenty-five or since a 25-7 win in 1983 over Wisconsin-Platteville. It's also the first win for the Midwest Conference against a YX school since 1935. Stallings made a resurgence for the Green Knights. During the 2018, Stallings only had 29 catches for 469 yards and six touchdowns. Through two games in 2019, the seniors recorded 15 catches, for 375 yards and five touchdowns, including two on Saturday for 90 and 38 yards. Coach Dan McCarty at the Midwest Conference Media Day had said finding ways to get stalling the ball would be a high priority for him. And it's definitely showing up in the first two weeks. So he gets my game ball. I definitely remember him saying that. It was an interesting season for them last year with the switch to the option. Obviously, it worked well enough, right? It got them to the playoffs and to the second round of the playoffs at that. But yeah, that meant that stalling as a wide receiver kind of dropped off our radar. Yeah, I think that was a big part to the quarterbacks that they had available last year. They had graduated Jack Becker, who was a three-year starter that we had a chance to play against in 2017. And they turned to Drew Rhodes, who was one of the probably most effective dual threat quarterbacks um, in Division Three last year, rushing for 994 yards and passing for um, over 1,600. Um, and he only moved to quarterback for his senior year at St. Norbert after playing wide receiver and being their primary kick and punt returner the two previous years. Um, you can't argue with the decision they made, though, and the success that they had last season. It was the farthest that they had moved into the playoffs. And with quarterbacks Freddie Foreman and Gage McClanahan combining for an average of 359 passing yards a game through the first two games, that's going to be a big thing for them moving forward. The thing they can't go and notice is that they do have other receivers, including Matt Galanopoulos, um, who's a very talented player. But Stallings' explosive speed is something that keeps defense coaches like me awake at night. And I'm glad I have a few more weeks to prepare for him. 
That's a. I am really glad that we have you. You. So, are you like the, you're the defensive front position coach, right? You just said that. So, is uh, I assume the the uh, the basic goal, right, is to just uh, give the guys less time to throw so that he can't get downfield, right? Yeah, get Jordan McInerney to the quarterback as fast as we can with the other guys, and then don't let him throw the ball cleanly. We need to drop for like full circles. We just went full circle. My team on the rise in the top 25 has to be Wesley. Winning on the road in a top 25 team is definitely going to get you some attention from those top 25 voters. And, you know, obviously that describes another team from Saturday as well. But I have to admit, personally, I'm not super bullish on Wesley, at least not yet, because I wasn't super bullish on Delaware Valley coming into the season. Uh, Delval put up a lot of points on Kane in week one. Uh, I'm not sure how that translates to something against the top 25 team. And then on Saturday, they averaged less than four yards per pass attempt and threw three interceptions. Delval is going to have to find a, a way to score some points. Uh, Wesley's obviously going to move up in the top 25, but I definitely want to see how they continue before I make too big a move on my ballot personally. Yeah, and my riser this week is coming from the uh, others receiving votes category. It's Salisbury. Though their win over Wisconsin Oshkosh may not be enough to propel them in the top 25, it does show that the Seagulls can adequately fill the void left in the East with Frostburg State moving up to the D2 ranks. Um, their Vaughn rushing attack piled up 4.3 yards per rushing attempt on 50 carries. Um, and though they were outgained by the Titans, limiting possessions and staying true to form, playing disciplined, good defense, and running the ball earned the Seagulls a hard-fought victory over a team that has been a mainstay in the West Region rankings over the past five years. For a team with only nine games on their schedule, this victory will set up an important battle in October against Wesley. Uh, between now and then, the Seagulls have two bye weeks in a row to get healthy before playing Montclair State, setting up a possible battle between ranked teams in the midseason. Yeah, I think one of those bye weeks is actually a game against a club team, but uh, that's a, certainly an opportunity to get your starters some rest. And I know that uh, Wesley had been in that position once upon a time, too, and did the exact same thing that wasn't flying that was falling with style as far as teams which will take a fall in the poll there are obviously a few to choose from for this week but i'm going to talk about rpi which had an interesting 6-3 loss at wpi this is the 113th meeting between the polytechnic institutes of worcester mass and rensselaer new york and another defensive battle keith you picked the worst week to miss so much defense to talk about i gave my game ball to a defensive guy Anyway, neither team in this game could engineer much offense, and it was Bryce Wade's second short field goal of the game that won it. But in addition to RPI falling, I think this is a you know a loss that will probably indirectly affect Ithaca as well, because I think in a positive way though, because now there should be more of a consensus as to who the top dog is in the Liberty League, and that should be Ithaca, and Ithaca should merit some more votes in the top twenty-five because of it. Well, I mean, Pat, my team is going to take a fall as Wabash College, you know, despite being a perennial prowler. The Little Giants may suffer not only from their loss, but the early season performance of their conference brethren with Wittenberg losing to Washington and Jefferson and DePaul losing to Central. Though a three-point loss on the road against Stevens Point is not hard to fathom, Stevens Point was a four-win team a year ago who Wabash beat. They are likely to finish in the middle of their conference. Additionally, Stevens Point head-to-head loss to John Carroll could bury Wabash behind John Carroll in the North Region rankings if all things are the same once we get to the regional rankings period. You see, this is why we have the National Committee Chair on the pod, right, to get us those little nuggets. It's perfectly logical, makes great sense, and I wasn't really thinking about regional rankings in Week 2. Well, the thing about these games are these are the only non-conference weeks that we have in Division 3, 
So now we're moving into that conference schedule, and it's really about winning your conference championship. But when you drop some of these games earlier, if you lose to a team that has other mutual crossover games, that's where you could have some problems um, down the road with rankings. Time for the off the beaten path highlight, and mine comes from a path that you know usually we generally cover pretty well, but nonetheless, this one could have slipped past people, and that is Bridgewater defeating Stevenson on the road on Saturday by a 37-22 score. This one totally caught me off guard. Stevenson started off by moving the chains a little bit, but Bridgewater totally took over the first half. They scored the first 23 points of the game, and Demetrius Jalapi ran first, 97 yards in the first half en route to 154 yards and two TDs for the game. Definitely a surprise win against a Stevenson team that we thought might compete for the MAC title. And I'm going off the beaten path to uh, Clinton, New York, for Hamilton College, who opened the 2019 season with a victory over Bowdoin, 37-24. to uh, It was the first time that Hamilton had won their season over since 2011. Despite only completing 8 of 20 passes on the day, the Continentals found great success running the ball behind David Kagan, who ran it 20 times for 195 yards and three touchdowns to pace the Continentals in their road win. Yeah, the status quo in a lot of places in the NESCAC changing places a little bit, uh, including Tufts with a big win over Trinity, Connecticut on Saturday. Surprise! Not my most surprising result. It certainly could have been. But for me, the most surprising result was the one that I saw at the end of the night on Saturday. Uh, and that was Hampton, Sydney defeating Christopher Newport in overtime. Under the lights on Saturday night, it was a, a 27-24 win. For the Tigers, a game uh, in which the teams combined for seven interceptions, but Hampton Sydney returned two of their three picks for touchdowns. Clay Vick, the quarterback for Hampton Sydney, threw four interceptions, but he also threw the game-winning touchdown to Dylan Costello in overtime. And uh, it was a surprising, uh, surprising for me, surprising for people who have uh, followed the ODAC for the past several years, and, and and certainly a surprise to Christopher Newport as well. And my most surprising result is also out on the East Coast, UMass Dartmouth who was 5-5 five and five last year, defeated Huston College 48-41 to in overtime. Huston had been to the NCAA playoffs three years in a row as an automatic qualifier, but Corsair quarterback Stephen Geikio completed 26 of 42 passes for 512 yards and five touchdowns, including the game-winning 23-yard completion to Abi Bamboos. The junior quarterback was also leading Russia for UMass Dartmouth. Uh, the Corsairs improved to 2-0 to start the season for the first time in 16 years, and Husson, under new head coach Nat Clark, finds themselves implementing a new offense with more passing focus than previous years under Gabby Price and are in danger of falling to 0-2 with a hungry 2-0 WPI coming in this week. Husson has not started a season 0-2 since 2013. Well, I like to see Husson just uh, trying to go out there in their non-conference schedule and challenge themselves, though. They're moving, uh, I would say, up in the echelon of conferences and will be competing in the Commonwealth Coast Conference this year. So conference play is going to be a little tougher. And I just like to see a team go out and, uh, you know, improve its non-conference schedule like that. Well, and they're a unique one, kind of how we were talking about St. Norbert earlier, where they go from the option attack to a more spread pro style attack. And that's going to be a change and adjustment for the players in their program. And Sometimes it's not all, all clean and crisp that first game, but it gets moving forward as the games go on, and hopefully they can uh, you know, continue to build upon this week's game.
And that brings us to stat of the week. Jim, my stat of the week comes from Brockport, where the Golden Eagles are struggling quite a bit on offense this season through the first two weeks. And, and there are a bunch of new faces starting a defense for them as well. After a scoreless first half on Saturday, Brockport freshman cornerback Raylan's Booten provided all the scoring his team would need and all it would get with back-to-back interception returns for touchdowns in the third quarter of a 14-0 win versus Framingham State. On a day in which Brockport failed to come away with any points on multiple trips to the red zone, Booten's 11-yard and 58-yard pick sixes got the job done. Booten has the uh, unenviable task of replacing Rashad Baker, who was a pretty fine corner himself for Brockport, but had a great week, too, and uh, was also a candidate for game ball, but definitely for stat of the week. And my stat of the week was 35 minutes and 19 seconds, which was the time of possession that Gustavus Adolphus had in their 41-31 victory over the University of Wisconsin Stout. Uh, despite being outgained by Stout, the Gusties scored a big victory in part by forcing three interceptions and winning the time of possession battle by almost 11 minutes. This sets the Gusties up for a big game against my foe St. John's next week, who played Wisconsin Stout to a 14-7 week one victory. The Gusties should come into the game with great confidence after such a convincing victory over a mutual opponent. Pronunciation 101. Beautivistic. Monon Belt. Beautivistic. Gallardi. German Ariel. Gustavus Adolphus. Yeah, that's how you pronounce Gustavus Adolphus. I hear this. Ah, I hear this so many times. It, it drives me nuts. Uh, I was at uh, when I was at uh, the lacrosse game on Saturday. We were in the same booth as the uh, as the live stream video broadcasters, and, and not students. These are professionals, but just like couldn't pronounce Gustavus Adolphus. Couldn't pronounce Wabash. Couldn't pronounce um, Bethel. I've never heard Bethel pronounced Beth L before. Um, but that was, it was just, uh, yeah, uh, I'm just happy they didn't manage to mispronounce like Stevens point or something like that. Well, if I would have mispronounced Gustavus Adolphus, I'd be called into our athletic director's office first thing on Monday morning, because that's where he's a graduate of. So that would be a, that'd be a big no, no in the office. I think your categories have become tiresome. Now's the time on sprockets where we dance. Now is the time on the podcast where we go to Twitter. Whenever we get into the point where we're stepping into the studio on Sunday to record these uh, podcasts for Monday, the ones where we wrap up the week, we throw out the call on Twitter. You can follow us. You should be following us. You should be following the D3FB hashtag. And we got this question from uh, Jason Rudolph, MD, who is at all sports underscore MD. And in case you thought it might be that he's from Maryland, it does say underneath that he's a board certified orthopedic surgeon. I don't think that has any effect on the question, though, which is, does a loss to a non-ranked opponent automatically drop you from the top 25? How about a loss to anybody ranked below you? Or on the other hand, does a mediocre win against a non-ranked opponent drop you? There's some really good kind of, you know, uh, nitty gritty top 25 questions here. Uh, The thing that comes to mind when he's asking about this is Johns Hopkins losing to Susquehanna on Saturday. And that's the decision that, uh, you know, obviously a lot of voters are going to have to make. Coach, I know obviously your rankings that you deal with on the regional rankings don't really follow these same sorts of things. Um, And I don't think you're a voter. You're not a voter in our top 25. And I think not in the coaches poll either. But you have any takes on this? Yeah, I think this is why I love our regional rankings, not starting until about halfway through the season, because these rankings that we're talking about a lot are based on what preseason expectations are, not necessarily what performance is. Mm -hmm. And so if we weren't to start actually ranking teams until maybe week four, week five, after they've had some games under their belt, how different would those look? And you can see this at the division one level, the division two or the division three level, that teams that are highly ranked at the beginning of the season might not be there at the end of the season 
um, if or if they have an injury or something of that nature. And so I don't know that either a, a win or a loss against, uh, you know, a, a loss against a ranked team maybe smells better than a, a win against a mediocre team, but a win's still better than a loss, no matter how you look at it. So in the end, you just want to win as many games as you can. I think if you're, you know, if you're a nine or 10 win team at the end of the year, you're probably going to be ranked in the top 25 as long as you played a couple of good teams. Yeah. And then from a, like a picky poll mechanics kind of uh, realm here to answer this question, let's just use Johns Hopkins as the uh, test case here. Johns Hopkins comes into the week ranked at number seven. You know, they beat Randolph Macon on Saturday uh, or on uh, Thursday, of course, back in week one. And at one point, uh, Randolph Macon looked like they were going to lose to Avert on Saturday, which would have changed Johns Hopkins' resume as well. But uh, Randolph Macon scored three touchdowns in the fourth quarter, went on and won that game. So that at least helps them a little bit. Uh, it is really difficult because of, you know, the preseason expectations thing and the fa- the thought that, you know, in a lot of cases, these are the this, a lot of the same student-athletes that went to the national semifinals and gave Mountain Union a pretty good game on the road in Alliance. So there's still you know some of that residual leftover. It is really hard to drop from seven all the way out of the top 25. I think that if maybe Randolph-Macon had lost in addition to that, that might have, uh, that might have dropped them all the way out. Uh, we are also recording this before all of the votes are in in the top 25, uh, so that'll be interesting as well. Susquehanna will be 2-0, and obviously is 2-0 and with uh, two wins, one of them against Johns Hopkins, one of, the, again, one of them against Lycoming, and Lycoming went back and uh, rallied and scored, again, three touchdowns in the fourth quarter also. Uh, they beat Widener on Saturday, so Lyco looks fairly decent. Susquehanna, by reflection, is going to look even better. So Susquehanna could maybe jump all the way in. Um, you might see a situation where if Susquehanna can jump in at like 20 or 21, then you might be able to find enough voters that will take Johns Hopkins all the way below them. That's really difficult to do. Here's the other thing, though, too. I don't know how many voters are going to remember this necessarily, but you know, last year Susquehanna beat Johns Hopkins as well. And yet at the end of the season, Johns Hopkins is the one playing in December. So that's just from that. Um to talk about a mediocre win against a non-ranked opponent, does that drop you? Not generally. We have like three. Uh, we have three groups of voters in our poll. We have coaches, we have sports information directors, and we have media. In a lot of those cases, those are the people who are kind of the inner circle on d3football.com. I think people know that I vote and that Keith McMillan votes and that uh, Adam Turr votes, and those are names that you're going to recognize. Um, though us, you know, the media group is probably more likely to drop a team that underperforms even in a W coaches almost never do that SIDs. It's kind of a mix. So I think what you see happen more often is you might slip a spot, right? Even for example, Johns Hopkins back from week one to week two, they went from six to seven, uh, with, um, you know, again, a win, a narrow win on the road against 24. So, you know. Those are things that do happen. They don't happen all the time, but it's definitely something that does happen. And I think it's fair to say it happens more often in our poll than in the coaches poll. How's that? You like that monologue? You good with that? That was good. You're good there. (laughs) Not much else to say about the top 25 with like the only person who's ever co-hosted the podcast who's not a top 25 voter but we thank you jason rudolph for the question and of course uh, you will know the answer uh to a lot of these things before you even get a chance to hear the response because the poll will be out uh the poll comes out early evening or late afternoon on sunday and the podcast of course drops first thing on monday
And now we're up to the final word, final word being the new thing that we've uh, put into place to replace every thought of yours, which is, you know, occasionally every 10 minutes of thoughts. Uh, we want to be, you know, we, we want to get this in in under an hour, right? And we're going to be pretty close to that. So uh, my final word is, is just to you, Coach. I really appreciate, A, everything you've done uh, for us over the last several years as a member of the committee and then as a chair of the national committee, just kind of really uh, keeping us in the loop and being willing to be open and talk about things because that, you know, we cover other sports in division three and we've covered football for 20 years. So we know that that doesn't always happen. I really appreciate you doing this and I appreciate you not hitting me too hard on lack of hip hop knowledge. So uh, thanks so much for that. No problem. I appreciate having me on. I appreciate everything you guys do on the site for Division Three football across the country. It's 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 great to be able to go to one place and find all the information rather than having to bounce around from school website to school website. When you know sometimes as a coach and you and when I've been in Division Three football now for I, I guess thirteen years as a coach and then four years as a player, it gives the opportunity to to be a fan of Division Three programs across the country and not just get caught up in the bubble of our local region or even our local league. So. I appreciate what you guys do there and have me on and, and continue to bring clarity to the D3, D3 world. I tell you, if there are other coaches out there listening who might consider co-hosting a, a podcast in the event that, you know, Keith misses another one. I thought Keith promised. I thought Keith uh, was contracted to be on every single one of these podcasts this year. I thought this was just recently that this happened, but uh Keith, uh, as we said, is on assignment. If you're totally interested in that, let me know. Uh, I almost, uh, like I said on the uh, pod 241 from Friday, I almost had to break glass and uh, pull out the emergency podcast co-host. Please state the nature of the medical emergency. So uh, I'm always looking for somebody, especially maybe somebody who's on the West Coast and is up late because that is often when we do these things. But uh, again, thanks to uh, Jim Catanzaro. This was D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast number 242, season 13, episode four, released on September 16th, 2019. Thanks for listening and keep an eye on the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like our podcast, this is what things, this is what, these are the things that people do who like podcasts. They rate it in Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, you know, any of the place they get podcasts so you can help other football fans find it. You can also leave comments for us on the blog page. You can reach us uh, to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football on Twitter. Keith is at D3Keith. Jim Catanzaro is at LFC underscore football. That's Lake Forest College football. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering the post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, and you can find his stuff at djmentos.com. Thanks again to our guest, Jim Catanzaro, for his time on this edition of our show. And, of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my co-host in absentia, Keith McMillan. No, I still have the sausage on my brain. I got to go fire up the grill. I need to. <laughs> I need to get some of that sweet, sweet. No, sorry, spicy, spicy sausage in me. There you go. We already had the. Uh, we've had the New York slice over here already with, from uh, brothers in Brooklyn. But now we're going to go head to head to dinner a little bit later. And I think we may go check out a Mets game tonight. So they're playing the Dodgers, and I haven't haven't seen the Mets play. I'm a Yankee fan, but we may we may be able to stick one in for today. There'll be a time to uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time.